few years ago when I went to practice in Burma, as I usually try to do every year, take a month or a little more time than that to do my own personal practice, I went to my teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, uh, one of my major teachers, and uh, began to uh, approach him to do my reporting. And as I went towards him, and before I even took my position in front of him, where I, we usually do the, the respectful bowing to our teacher, even before I got there, he asked me the question, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? And he does this all the time. He just asks you a question as if, you know, this is part of your test. Uh, <laughs> are you going to pass this test of all these questions? Um, so you don't ask him the questions. He asks you the questions sometimes. And so at that time I responded to him that what I experienced equanimity to be and what I knew equanimity to be in terms of what I've seen from others and read from other knowledgeable and very experienced meditators was that equanimity was a spacious inner balance, the ability to open to whatever is being expressed within us or from outside of us, and the ability to be with it with some kind of evenness of mind, varying uh, qualities of evenness of mind. So he didn't reject what I was saying, but he told me this, he gave me this very interesting metaphor, which I've carried with me and it's helped me to understand how to achieve equanimity on deeper levels, not just in terms of practicing the Brahma-viharas that we, when we practice equanimity in the afternoons, but also to see it in terms of a different kind of balance, a balance of varying, of various qualities. So he said that equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses, and the lead horse is called mindfulness. This is the horse that's leading the other four. And the two horses behind the lead horse of mindfulness are the pair of faith and wisdom. And these two need to be in balance. And behind that pair of horses is the pair of concentration and energy. So he went on to give a teaching that when faith and wisdom are in balance, and when concentration are in balance, then mindfulness has little work. The lead horse has little work. It becomes easier. And indeed, there is a place in our practice that is called effortless mindfulness. And indeed, this is when we see that both faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, are in balance with one another, and of course, with everything else. So this is when mindfulness feels very effortless, that when it's, it's just going on by itself. It's when uh, we understand for ourselves that we may forget the Dharma, but the Dharma won't forget us. It just chases after us, and mindfulness just comes up on its own. So this chariot is leading uh, our practice, our lives very powerfully, very easily to the ultimate goal of freedom from suffering, liberation from ignorance and delusion, bit by bit. So more about equanimity. I know I gave a talk about it the other night, and all of us in our own ways in the uh, personal interviews and also in the morning practice were, were pointing towards this over and over again. So just as a way of supporting our understanding and remembering and reminding that this equanimity is this powerful support on our journey, It's protection from the eight worldly winds of life. I call them the eight vicissitudes of life. Praise and blame, 
gain and loss, or success and failure, pleasure and pain, or joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. So these are the eight different kinds of worldly winds that are constantly blowing one way or another. And our job is to be open, to be in a way, um, have an even keel, so that we're able to navigate our way through our lives without getting blown away, blown over, drowned in any one of the uh, eight worldly winds. During our practice and the times I talk about equanimity, there is mostly an attention on the unpleasant aspects of the eight worldly winds. For example, on the blame, on the pain, on the loss, on the disrepute side. But also, I just wanted to take this opportunity to point out the other sides. We can become attached to praise, to pleasure, to success, to gain or fame. So the operative um, unwholesome quality here is attachment. And when we're excessively elated by the appearance of praise or pleasure, fame or gain, when we're excessively elated about this, we become, there is attachment there, and we become identified with that experience in our lives. It sets up uh, the possibility, the great possibility for suffering, because of course it doesn't last. The winds change, the winds of life change, it goes away. As one of my teachers said long ago, Swami Satchitananda, no appointment, no disappointment. So, you know, not attached to whatever we're making an agenda for, whatever we're experiencing now, when it goes, there's no disappointment there. But we can become attached. When more balance of mind and heart is there, we have a sense, we have an inner sense. This is the way it is for now. It's always important to say, this is the way it is right now or for now, because it implies that it's going to change, of course. It's not going to stay the same. Um, one of my yogi friends uh, who cooks for us, who has cooked for us a lot at some of our retreats, um, he says to me, when he's not in line, he's not when he's not understanding about these winds of change, he gets into a place where he feels like it's a hell realm. But when, because he's suffering a lot, he's attached to something always being the same, something pleasant. But when he understands it deeply, he can just say, oh well, it's, it's just like this right now. Oh well, it's just like this right now. So he has this saying for me. He says, Kamala, it's either oh well or oh hell. <laughs> I can choose, um, but sometimes habit chooses for me. When I'm conscious, I can choose. When we become identified with the opposite, you know, with failure, with loss, with blame, with pain, we feel weak helpless, incompetent, inadequate, not willing to go on sometimes because of so much reactivity to what's going on. Sometimes this reactivity in the form of aversion or, or attachment to whatever is going on, um, we can also, through habit, become identified with that. We think, this is my, this is who I am, this is my uh, personality, my permanent personality, when we begin to see that even personality is always changing. What makes up these qualities of wholesome habits of mind, unwholesome habits of mind, they're always changing. How can we be identified, attached to anything? Our minds and hearts are not free to see clearly when there's that identification there, when there is that reactivity there 
to whatever's going on. But when there's non-reactivity, that means that the mind is clean and clear of either form, attachment, ill will, aversion. And there is this great ability to make the choice to go in the direction of a harmony, of harmlessness, to go in the direction of happiness. So uh, we have the choice. We have a, a greater decision-making clarity to make choices when there is equanimity. So keeping uh, all of these that I spoke about earlier, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy in balance, really helps us to uh, develop equanimity. And it makes it easier for mindfulness to be present in a very clear, powerful way. So I'd like to talk more about these qualities. Um, their active powers, all of these five faculties, mindfulness, energy, concentration, uh, wisdom, faith, all of these five faculties are active within us. The Buddha and our teachers constantly say, it's, I can't just deem it upon you. I can't just wish it for you. I can give you my goodwill and my support and all of that. But you yourselves have to walk the path. And so constantly, I find that the teachers who have been most helpful to me are the ones who encourage me and who have faith in me to do the work for myself and not to depend on them to do the work for me, to answer all my questions. Sometimes they say, find out for yourself. So all of these uh, faculties within us are being developed over and over again, even when we just practice mindfulness. But sometimes we can sp pay special attention to them. Just by knowing them, actually, they become powerful. So sometimes uh, these five faculties become what are called five powers. So the, the same uh, particular qualities of faith, uh, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, energy, uh, are in a talk called the Five Spiritual Powers. And this is when all of them are very, very strong in our practice. Each performs its own function. They have different functions, which I'll talk about. And then establishes bit by bit the balance with the opposite function. So I want to describe them individually and then uh, describe how they might work together in pairs. So you understand for yourselves. It, it's not just this blind way that you're practicing. You begin to understand what's working within you. Now, these are all mental factors. You know, just as in our bodies we have different organs that do a certain function, that help our body do its thing so we can live and we can be healthy, so too the mind has different functions, has different faculties, just like the different organs in the body. And by knowing how they function, by helping them be more in balance with one another, they can become very strong, very healthy, and help us live a wise life, a happy life. So I'd like to talk about them individually, as I said, and then um, in pairs. So faith brings about our confidence to put energy into the path. When we have faith in something, then we're willing to put energy into the path of practice. When we have energy, that energy kindles mindful awareness, and it just allows that mindful awareness to do its work. If there were no energy uh, to feed that mindful awareness, it wouldn't happen. Mindful awareness, it would happen, but it might be very, very weak. 
not strong enough for the ever-deepening power of mindfulness that we need to have for full liberation. And then this energy of mindful attention, when it happens over and over and over again, it can happen on a chosen object, like one, ex- one object, like when we do metta practice or equanimity practice, or when we place the attention on the breath over and over again, or on a sound, like a mantra or a sound outside of ourselves. This produces a very powerful kind of concentration. This mindful attention, when put on changing objects, not just one object or a chosen object, but on changing objects, like we do in vipassana practice, the different experiences that Debbie described in the very first Dhamma talk, the four foundations of mindfulness that we place our mindful attention on, even on varying and changing objects, this kind of concentration can be developed. So mindful attention on either a chosen object or on changing objects can produce very powerful concentration. Concentration steadies the mind, it unifies the mind, and uh, this helps to bring that attention in a very streamlined way to that one experience. Even if it's momentary, it can be very powerfully seen, understood, known. So all of these, and I'll, I'll fill these out more, all of these lead to wisdom. When all of these are developed, it leads to that wisdom that frees the mind from ignorance. And from that ignorance, uh, that freeing from ignorance, it frees a mind also from uh, ill will, from attachment. So first to fill out faith. When we look at faith and see how it works within us, we can see for ourselves that when we have some faith, even if it's a little faith, it provides some inspiration to actually start on a path of practice to do something. It doesn't have to be necessarily this kind of practice. It can be to do a project, the faith that we know that we can do it, basically, or the faith that we have that it can bring some benefit to ourselves or to others. And when we have that kind of inspiration that we can do it, that opens the way for some aspiration that we, we have, we can aspire for example, to something greater than what we've done before. We can aspire to something greater than we've known before. We can aspire to grow in our hearts and our minds so that we're a kind of a bigger person in a beautiful way for ourselves and others. So we can aspire to experience also less and less suffering. We can somehow have the faith that we know that it's possible that there can be the lessening of ignorance, the lessening of suffering, and eventually the complete extinction of ignorance, the complete extinction of suffering, full liberation. So bit by bit, we have this kind of faith. It might not happen all at once. We may not have this faith in the possibility of full liberation all at once. But we begin to see the possibility because moment by moment we begin to see that it's possible to be free from a moment of ill will, from a moment of clinging, from a moment of confusion. We can see more clearly. So it steers us away from doubt and Even when we have some faith, doubt can arise. And it says, uh, doubt says to us, this is not the way. Whatever we're doing is not the way. Or doubt will say to us, give up. You know, maybe it says, you're not worthy of this path. Or maybe another path is better for you. 
another way of doing things is better for you. Manindra would call this, one of our teachers would call this Mara, the, uh, the tempter, tempting us, or the temptress, tempting us away from having faith in what we're doing. But even when doubt arises, faith can be stronger, and faith kind of wins, and faith enables uh, all of the other factors to come into play in a way, concentration, energy, mindfulness, and wisdom, that faith arouses the other factors, and there's the ability to say, this is just a momentary confusion, a momentary delusion. Somebody came to practice, uh, to interview during this um, retreat, and said that this person saw some doubt arise, but knew right away, oh, it's just doubt. And that's what this person said. It's just doubt. It's just not, not saying it like this, but I'm translating it this way. Just a momentary experience, appearance in the mind. It didn't have to grip the mind and paralyze the mind to stop doing practice. Faith is stronger, not paralyzed by doubt. So faith has the ability to withstand the difficulties, even withstand the doubt, even withstand the confusion that comes up in the mind and is able to say, this is the way. One of the uh, biggest expressions of faith to me is uh, one of the uh, ways that the Buddha is shown in his sitting. And I think it's this Buddha here, touching the earth. When the Buddha um, during his time under the Bodhi tree, it said in, the, in all the ancient texts, and um, it said that the Buddha was tempted by many, many different uh, ways of getting him off the path through saying that you don't deserve this, that um, you're not worthy of the path of liberation, tempting through uh, being scared, being, uh, bringing up all kinds of images that would make him fearful, bringing all kinds of tempting images that would make uh, a lot of attachment and desire come up in the mind. But the Buddha put his hand down and touched the earth and asked the earth to bear witness to his right to understand the truth and to be liberated by it. So this is one of the images to me that is um, greatly depicting for me faith, the faith to go on even through the most horrible difficulties of practice. And we know all of us, all of you, have gone through a lot of temptations, of difficulties, and uh, things that are tempting you to give up. So we have faith to withstand the difficulties. It's said that faith is a quality of the heart connected with devotion. But it's not devotion to someone else, not even devotion to the Buddha or to another person, um, another teacher. It's devotion to our own liberation. Devotion, whatever liberation means to you, Maybe it's just being a little more liberated from the places that grip you in your heart or the places that come up and paralyze your heart from going further, that close you down. So this is what faith is, devotion to oneself, to one's uh, potential for awakening. It's giving oneself totally to that, giving oneself totally to that. Someone asked in a group, which was a very good question, and I've been meaning to uh, talk about bowing to all of you, because some of you may be wondering, what's the bowing about when they see us or other people, other of you, bow out there? To me, um, it, it, it can mean different things for different people. One of the things it can mean to me is a devotion to my own uh, potential for liberation. 
I may be bowing to this Buddha, this statue of the Buddha, because I respect that this person, as far as I know from all the ancient scriptures and from the teachings being handed down person to person, teacher by teacher, throughout these 2,500 years plus, um, have exemplified to me these teachers and also the, the direction and also the understanding that I've come to know for myself has exemplified to me that this is a path worthy of my devotion and it's a path that I can depend upon to give more and more freedom, less and less suffering, so that I can really place my heart upon that. And that's what sada, which is the Pali word for faith, means. Sada, to place one's heart upon. So I place my heart upon that, not my intellectual understanding, but my experiential understanding on it. What I have intuited and have found out to be true by experience. It says that uh, faith, there can be different kinds of faith. Faith in our ability to see for ourselves. This is one of the most um, challenging of the faiths to me. Faith in my own ability to do the practice because it can be really, really difficult. There's faith in the teaching. There's faith in the teacher. And um, we must be able to uh, understand and have a kind of a, a confidence in who is giving the teaching to us. And sometimes, you know, as far as faith in the teacher, we have to choose people that we resonate with. And sometimes we don't resonate with every teacher. But there might, might be a particular teaching that that teacher is bringing forth that we can resonate with. So we can resonate with the teaching rather than the teacher. One time I asked Manindraji about a particular teacher that I was having my own reservations about. This was about 30 years ago. And I said, I don't see by this teacher's actions that I can have faith in that what the teacher is presenting. And the teacher was presenting what I would say is the Buddha Dharma, you know, the teachings from the Buddha. And the Buddha, the, the Dharma coming from that teacher was, it, it could ring uh, true to me. It was very clear. But the actions of that teacher weren't um, that exemplary to me. But Manindra said to me, he said, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. And so if you just sometimes can look past the chemistry, um, and sometimes that chemistry is our own projection, or just, you know, it, it just, it doesn't mix sometimes. And so let it be. But look to the teaching and not to the teacher, as uh, it's said in the, I've heard mo most clearly in the Tibetan uh, teachings, Look to the teachings and not to the teacher. And look to your understanding of the teaching, how you can actually understand it, experience it. Can you look to your faith and your own ability to walk the path and to understand what uh, is revealed as you walk the path? What insights are revealed to you along the way? And sometimes as Deborah was saying this morning, there, there may be some ahas about our life, those kinds of psychological insights which are important. Um, we try not to lean into them so we don't get lost there, so that we can understand more deeply some of the universal insights that really free us. The insight into impermanence, for example. So it's faith in our ability that we usually have to grapple with most of the time. And that's where we really have to watch ourselves, where we think, I can't go on. But really, we do take the next step. We see that we take the next step. 
one time I was in practice and um, I was I was just so overwhelmed with suffering and what I saw in my own practice, what was going on in the body, and what I saw going on in the mind was it was breaking my heart and it was also making the mind understand things that it never understood before. So it was completely new territory. And when I went to the teacher, this was Seda Upandita, it's just I kind of fell to the ground in a puddle of tears and giving up. And I said, I can't go on. I just, this was one of the rolling up the mat phases that they call in in our practice. And and the other uh, teacher there was um, from Nepal, and also a monk, um, Seyadeo Nyanaponika. And it was so horrible, um, the spectacle I was making of myself. I'm a little bit ashamed of it right now. <laughs> but even that shame is arising and passing away um, <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> it's not so solid, really. Um, uh, just in that puddle, the Unyanaponika got up and he started pacing back and forth and saying, oh, there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much suffering in the world. <laughs> and then I, I said, well, what, what should I do? What should I do? I, don't, I can't go home. I was far away from home, thousands of miles away. So there was a, the talk Upandita said in Burmese and Unyanaponika said, uh, because I was telling him it happens mostly in walking practice that I just open to this area that I, I've never seen before. Everything's dissolving. And so Unyanaponika translated, he said, when you don't know what to do, you just stop your walking and bend down mindfully and pull up your socks mindfully <laughs> and begin again. And I thought, oh, that's the most spiritual teaching in the whole world, you know. It was so just, you know, simple and to the point. It didn't ask me to see, you know, the, the dissolving nature of experience. It just said, just begin again, just begin again. And so that was my faith, you know, just to begin again. And this is the faith we need to have in practice just to begin again. And really, that's all we need. We don't have to have the faith that we'll, in those moments, that we'll be liberated, or that we'll be a Buddha, or a Bodhisattva, or that we'll go home and never holler at our children again, or, you know, have the best relationship in the whole world. We'll just, in the moment, all we'll have is a faith to begin again. And that's really enough. But we need to have it over and over and over again. And this is what it takes to keep on our path, to keep that kind of devotion that we have to keep on doing what we need to do. So there's blind faith. Um, Also, there's bright faith. There's mature faith. There's verified faith. There's unshakable faith. And just a little bit about each one of these. I'm spending a little more time on faith because I know that that's a really important aspect for all of us. Blind faith is described as really misplaced trust in someone, someone else, or a teaching that really isn't um, an understanding that we really deeply don't intuit to be worthy of our efforts. It's an uninvestigated confidence that we can have in something. For example, we're willing to hear a teaching from someone and hear the confidence that that person is putting forth in their teaching, saying that they understand things to be this way or that way. And we believe in their confidence in what they believe in. And we just can hear that and agree with it and say, oh, that's right, this is true, and we want to believe it so badly that we just take it on blind faith, and we actually don't do the work to know it for ourselves, to know that understanding for ourselves. We just agree, which is wonderful for a while. It might get us on the path, but if there's no instruction on how 
to actually understand that for ourselves. If it's just a matter of believing that teacher blindly, then uh, it's not enough. We have to know how to walk the path ourselves, how to understand it experientially, not because we're taking someone else's word for it. Whenever I was looking to Manindra or to Upandita for the answers or like to tell me it's all right, just tell me it's all right, tell me I'm going to be all right, you know, of course they would tell me in their own ways that you'll get over this, it's all impermanent, you know, mm-hmm. that would, that's the truth. But, <laughs> but Manindra would say, and the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve yours. And you know, he would be very direct, and so would Upandita. Our Burmese teachers have those fans. If any of you have practiced with the Burmese teachers, what those fans say to me is, you have to do it for yourself. Don't, you know, pin your, your hopes on me to do it for me. It's turning it back, turning it back. I can't solve your problems. You have to solve them for yourself. And so the, the ancient teachings say, the Buddhas, the teachers, show the way, show the path, but we have to walk the path. And the Buddha said, if there is no way shown to the end of suffering, if there is not, not the Eightfold Noble Path, then it is not the way to the end of suffering. And there was a very calm and, cor- and clear um, handing down of that. That was the Buddha's understanding, that there needs to be a way, a path that we can walk, and not just taking understanding blindly from someone else. So that's blind faith. It's not really investigated experientially. And then there's bright faith. Uh, Bright faith can overpower doubt in us. We begin with bright faith. We can begin to walk the path for ourselves. We may hear the Dharma or hear another teaching the truth. Uh, The Dharma is expressed in many ways, not not just in the Buddha's Dhamma, but uh, the Dharma is the truth. It, It doesn't mean the Buddha's truth necessarily. It can be inspired by a person, this bright faith, or by a writing, or by being in nature and just having a teaching from leaves falling on the ground. Or by, someone said today, by just watching the shower of, uh, of the asteroids in the sky, just watching maybe a falling star. One gets a teaching just from nature seeing the deep impermanence of everything. So this was, for me, one of my bright faith experiences when I first heard the Dharma, or the Dhamma. I had the feeling that I've come home, that I feel like this is my home. This is where I really belong. This is a path that I can walk on. And I felt inspired by the teacher who was giving it, by Manindraji. And I saw in him the um, kind of beholding of that path, the experiential understanding of that path, and then along the way in others. So my own bright faith was uh, sparked by these experiences, by hearing the Dhamma, by seeing it uh, being expressed and being lived out by certain people in my life. So that's bright faith. And then there's mature faith. When we're walking the path, when we're actually experiencing what we experience in our lives and on the cushion, the deeper experiences uh, that confirm what we've heard in the Dhamma. We may hear things when we go to retreats or even when we're at home when we listen to others speak, others who are farther along on the path than us, when we hear them speaking of their experiences and you say, you think to yourself, oh, I haven't experienced that. But it's not that we have a doubt in ourselves about it. It's that, oh, have not yet experienced that. 
But when we begin to experience them, and then maybe a Dhamma talk uh, confirms this is the understanding. For example, a talk on the Four Noble Truths. Um, when I first heard the Four Noble Truths, I thought, ah, this is true. Now I understand the Noble Truth of Suffering experientially, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the End of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Way to the End of Suffering. And this all rang so true to me. I understood uh, seeing that there is this cause and effect relationship between everything that happens. We see that because of this, this happens, the laws of karma. And so we begin to understand more deeply this is mature faith. And then there's verified faith. Even more deeply than that, we begin to see impermanence on a moment-to-moment level. We begin to see the selfless or impersonal quality of everything that happens. Steve will talk more about this later. We begin to see that the thought or the idea that we have that something in life or all of life, we might finally get to a place in life where it provides some eternal satisfaction, that we stop grasping for that. We're more open to that. There are some times of pain. There are some times of pleasure. It just comes and goes and we're no longer attached to that. It has to be in a permanently satisfying way. So this verified faith uh, points the way to unshakable faith. This unshakable faith is often talked about in the uh, Buddha's understanding of the truth of the Dhamma, of the experiencing of the first stage of enlightenment, the first experiencing of the first path, which is often called the entering of the stream, where all doubt about the path of practice is vanished. And um, there's no doubt anymore about the path of practice. But uh, there could still be some maybe lack of confidence when something difficult arises. There could be still some lack of confidence. Can I do this? Can I open to this suffering? but faith will eventually vanish that doubt. So faith leads to energy, the second quality, to be present uh, energetically with this ever-changing experience of life. And it's a kind of energy that isn't like this big umphing, but it's a kind of moment-to-moment energy that I talked about, the energy to begin again the energy to not give up, to not be lazy, for example. Um, sometimes I, in the past, long ago, I would feel like I can't go on. I, and I would just decide to lay in bed, you know, and just look out the window. And, but I couldn't do that, you know. The faith would come in, more energy would come in, mindfulness would say, It's just reflecting moment-to-moment awareness. So the willingness to continue is a kind of faith that we get in this practice. Um, Sometimes it gets so great, this energy and faith that kindles this energy gets so great that we call what we call our hair becomes on fire with the Dharma. We get this um, samvega, this this urgency for liberation, this urgent kind of energy to be liberated from ignorance, from ill will, from clinging. And this is a kind of energy that can come up. And when we have this kind of energy, we can strive too hard. We can come to retreat and feel like we need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But we still, we need to understand we need the moment-to-moment kind of energy. So that's energy. And now this energy can serve mindfulness. This moment-to-moment energy can serve moment-to-moment mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? Just pretty much in a nutshell. 
mindfulness is uh, described in in all the commentaries and the uh, original texts of the uh, the Buddha's teaching. It's described as a mirror, really, just a mirror, a clean mirror, a clear mirror that reflects in a clear way whatever is happening. That's all. It just reflects what's happening. It reflects what's happening in a way that aversion doesn't push away if what's happening is unpleasant. Aversion doesn't come along and push it away. It may happen, but that's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is just reflecting what's going on. If it's pleasant, there's nothing in mindfulness that will reach out and hold on to it if it's pleasant. Neither is there anything in mindfulness that will reach out and push out, push away if it's unpleasant. It merely reflects with very clear, that very clear awareness, what's happening moment to moment. And there's a carefulness about this. There's a vividness about this. Mindfulness is fullness of mind. There's a very full and complete presence with what is happening. It's not about I am being present. It's about mindfulness being that quality of mind that's really present, reflecting clearly whatever is happening moment to moment. Now, somebody asked today, is mindfulness the same as equanimity? So I want to answer that. No, it's not the same. Mindfulness itself can reflect very clearly what's happening, but equanimity gives mindfulness the power to, um, to protect mindfulness so that reactivity doesn't come into play. Reactivity is attachment or aversion. So when equanimity is there, it protects mindfulness so that aversion or attachment don't come into the field. So there is non-reactivity with mindfulness. And this is what makes mindfulness extraordinarily powerful, is this equanimity, because there is an absence of reactivity at that time. So I want to uh, read what Sogyal Rinpoche says about mindfulness because it also does a lot of other beautiful things. It isn't just this kind of dry experience. It brings with it other experiences, like equanimity. Manindra used to say, when mindfulness is there, all the other beautiful qualities of mind come forth. I remember he gave me this teaching when I was walking on the beach on Maui with my children, and he was there with us. And the children were all coming around, and they were pulling on my, um, my shirt, and, and I wanted to have a peaceful time. And Manindra, being Manindra, takes every opportunity to give a teaching. And he said, um, and I was getting a little annoyed, you know, at the children. And he said, he said, Mom, he used to call me Mom, like the other kids would call me Mom. He would say, Mom, you know, mindfulness is like the mother. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get this nice little lecture. And he said, mindfulness is like the mother. When the mother is there, all the beautiful children come around. And your beautiful children are like equanimity. They're like loving kindness. Uh, they're like joy, you know, and they're like compassion. And I had four children. So he said, all the beautiful children come around. So when mindfulness is there, all the beautiful qualities of heart and mind come. And there are more than those four. So this is what Sogyal Rinpoche says. The practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become truly useful to others? So this is mindfulness, which leads, which is uh, actually very um, supportive to concentration and concentration supportive to mindfulness. 
Concentration holds the beam of mindful attention steady on that experience, whether it's a moment-to-moment experience or it's a, a focused attention on a chosen object or chosen experience. Concentration is the antidote to the restless mind, to the very dispersed mind. <clears throat> it gathers the attention, it unifies the attention, and it beams it in a unified way, in a streamlined way, to whatever the experience is. Whether it's a moment-to-moment experience or it's uh, one experience over and over again. So then there's wisdom. All of these factors lead to wisdom. They become very strong. And wisdom gets ignited. These factors are uh, factors of light, they call, which light the way towards wisdom and which brighten the factor of wisdom in the mind. Wisdom is a very, very bright light, it is said. Manindra used to say that where there is light, there can be no darkness. We, we, we won't be able, the darkness is ignorance, not seeing, uh, not knowing or, or knowing wrongly. So <clears throat> this wisdom is called the crowning virtue of our practice. It drives away ignorance. It liberates us begins to liberate us bit by bit from the suffering that we experience because of ignorance. So wisdom is book knowledge, is good. It's, um, it's something that we all need. Some of us need to rely on it more than others. But if it's too much, when we think about it too much, we can get intoxicated with our knowledge, actually get identified with being a knowledgeable person. And uh, because we're so identified with that, we don't practice. We just want to read about it. So wisdom that's experiential is a kind of wisdom that the Buddha was talking about when we understand deeply through our experience uh, the nature of life. Steve will talk more about that. So what about these in pairs? How do they help each other in pairs? It said that faith has to balance wisdom, our capacity for our devotion, our devotion to our practice, has to practice, has to balance what comes out of our practice, comprehending our practice. So faith and wisdom are the balance of devotion and comprehension. But it's the comprehension that comes from our practice to reiterate. And maybe it's verified by what we read or what we hear. If they're not in balance and we have too much faith, then it will lean towards blind faith, where we just would rather just hear it from others and just agree with them, for example. Or if it leads to too, if there's too much wisdom and there's not enough experiential uh, walking the path for ourselves, then we can get, as I said, intoxicated with that wisdom and just feel that we can um, just keep knowing intellectually what it's all about and repeating the words of wisdom that others say and feel that that's, that's it for us. So it has to be balanced, faith and wisdom. Energy and concentration have to be balanced in order for there to be an active exertion of our energy, but having that energy be moment to moment and very kind of streamlined energy. Concentration, in a way, is a kind of energy where it's streamlined in that moment of experience, whether it's a changing moment or a chosen moment, so that uh, the energy is kind of pierces the energy and the concentration can pierce through the illusion of ignorance through the illusion of solidity through the illusion of self so concentration and energy need to be balanced when there's too much concentration and there's not enough energy it leads to what is called sinking mind sinking mind is when you can be really, really clear 
and there's a lot of pleasant feeling because the mind gets so concentrated. There, there can be, along with concentration, a lot of tranquility and calm in the mind. And when this happens, when there's a lot of concentration and not enough moment-to-moment energy, we can feel very, very clear, very, very clear, very, very quiet, and all of a sudden, boom, we're out. You know, I'm sure some of you or all of you have experienced that in some way. This is not sloth and torpor. This is sinking mind. So you really need to know the difference there. And so, again, if there's too much energy, on the other hand, then we can be too restless. And, um, of course, that doesn't work either. So this needs to be balanced. There's this beautiful story where the Buddha counsels a discouraged monk. His name was Sona. And uh, he asked that monk to balance or tune his spiritual faculties as one would tune a musical instrument. Sono had this musical instrument. He played a lute. So he said to Sona, what do you think, Sona, when the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but tuned to be right on pitch? Was your lute in tune and playable? And Sona said, yes, Lord. In the same way, Sona, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Slack persistence leads to laziness. Thus, you should determine the right pitch for your persistence. Attune the pitch of the five faculties to that, and then pick up your theme. Pick up your theme. So, in my own practice, I like to think of the middle path. And even if I'm not figuring out if there's too much concentration or too much energy, or there's too much faith, or too little wisdom or the opposite, I ask myself, where is the middle path? Whether it's in my daily life and the decisions I have to make, the responses I have to make to life, um, or it's here in practice on the sitting cushion, I ask myself, where is the middle path here? And it, it helps me to have some wise reflection on what's going on and to find out for myself what to do. So these are the five spiritual faculties that can actually become powers in our life, in our practice, headed by mindfulness, the lead, uh, leading the chariot. We, we have this saying, the chariot to Nibbana, the chariot to liberation. And <clears throat> behind that, the uh, pair of concentration and energy Where can we find the middle path there? And behind that, the pair of faith and wisdom. Where's the middle path there? Where's the balance in all of those? And when we know that for ourselves, we we can carry on with our path. Really feeling that we can rely on ourselves, that we can go forth into our path of practice to our full potential. So I'd like to end with um, from this from Zigar Kontro Rinpoche, from his book, It's Up to You. He says, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. From your efforts to bring benefit, You must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.